the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right. Welcome back to the conversation. You know, as ironically, we were talking with Father Frank Provone earlier in the program about some of the the challenges that we've seen, the victories and challenges in relationship to advancement of the pro-life movement. And I think the observation is very true that in a de-Christianized world, um, the lack of sensitivity to the value of human life uh, becomes a challenge because you, you can no longer start with that premise that, that a lot of people had going back many years ago. And so while we've seen some big victories in the legal arena, there are some challenges in, in other arenas. But that all said, we continue to labor on the front lines. And, um, and as we do so, the work is cut out for us, certainly in states like California. We all know that. Um, we've invited our good friend Brian Johnston, Western Regional Director with the National Right to Life Committee, to join us on the program tonight to to share some insights in relationship to um, some of California law that, uh, quite frankly, is almost like a, a, a political or legal sleight of hand when it comes to um, providing certain provisions that would seemingly protect the unborn, and at the same token, quietly, what's the old saying? What the big print giveth, the little print taketh away. And that is certainly true here in California. Brian, fill us in. Welcome. Craig, great to be on, and I'm glad that you also had Father Frank. He's a great guy. And uh, at at variance with that other famous Catholic over in San Francisco, uh, Nancy Pelosi. (laughs) (laughs) One of them has it right. Let me just put it that way. At any rate, I do want to uh, emphasize you got a copy, and our supporters have been given an embargoed copy, but reporters also got what you received. And that's a special report on the actual laws in the state of California regarding abortion. In this report, and uh, listeners can actually go to CaliforniaProLife.org to the blog page, and it's there. I want to describe first what it does. It actually only connects and lists existing California statutes. And as you go over it, most of them are highlighted. I found out on the one I'm looking at, some of them are clickable whenever there's a reference, for example, to the Medi-Cal handbook. We link directly to the Medi-Cal handbook. And one of the things the Medi-Cal handbook says is that The state of California will fund any abortion at any gestational age. So the idea that, that, oh, no, this is only for early certain circumstances, it also goes on to say there is no medically indicated reason necessary. So an abortionist, and this is what the abortionists read. This is They fill out the forms according to this handbook and how they get their money. There need not be a medically indicated reason. There doesn't have to be anything wrong with the mom. There doesn't have to be anything wrong, I'm using air quotes, wrong with the baby. Your tax dollars will pay for that 
in any gestational age. Now, often, and I, I talk to another reporter, we kind of, I, I try to be good-natured, but the reality, he said, well, you're alleging. I said, no, I'm sorry. I, the re- that's the reason I'm sending it to you now. I haven't alleged anything. I'm simply citing and linking, for your sake, to the actual laws and decisions. These are written in ink. We didn't write them. They're from the California Codes. And if you go over this, as we talk about this very quickly, Greg, I think the important thing for even pro-lifers to understand, the intentional spiritual warfare and deceit that's being used in language. And if you don't understand the language that's being used on you, you are going to lose in the battle of ideas. And that's what's raging right now is a huge battle. It's a spiritual battle of ideas. And so, very quickly, I want to remind all listeners, there's actually two very specific meanings to that word choice. And the, both the media, the abortion lobby, the, that Nancy Pelosi, anyone who is a, quote, abortion advocate, they know that. And they intentionally weasel through whichever definition they think you'd like at the moment. And let me tell you first, the fact is is that under federal abortion law, there were two decisions that came down on January 22nd, and we have the citations there, in the exact language that Justice Blackman wrote, and Roe v. Wade, and Adobe Bolton. You can read his words. And in Roe v. Wade, we typically hear, oh, well, no, it limits abortion, and there's trimesters, and what's the big deal? Because it's really, and if you only read Roe v. Wade, it actually seems kind of like, oh, well, maybe it does limit abortion. But what's never talked about, and it has equal weight, in fact, to be honest, because of this language, it is controlling authority over Roe, and that is Doe v. Bolton. Both came down the same day. Both of them dealed with abortion laws in every state and struck them. On June 22nd, every state in the, in the Union, even California, said, we kind of want to protect babies, so we're going to do it. And Roe v. Wade said, no, you're not. Doe v. Bolton said the same thing, no, you're not. But in Doe v. Bolton, this is what, what Justice Blackman did. He gave instructions to abortionists, literally. And he said, there may be a time when the woman's health is endangered. And an abortion is justified. And by health, what we mean are all factors, physical, psychological, emotional, familial, and the woman's age, as determined by the abortionist. So the abortionist has sole authority, even late term, to say, you know, I think this woman is, you know, she's young right now. He's going to be emotionally bothered by this in the future. He may conjecture that he's the sole authority. People don't realize that. And so the idea that somehow this is controlled or that it's about her life in danger. No, it's not. And Justice Blackman wrote it specifically. No, we're talking about psychobabble versions of health. That whatever the abortionist, remember, that's the individual paid to use medicine to kill this human being. If they feel like it, that trumps it, and as long as they say in their opinion, oh, it could have affected some aspect of her life, I'm doing this. 
So that's national abortion law because of those two decisions. Many pro-lifers don't understand that. And that has given rise to the two games that are played with choice. Many people and the media, we actually wrote this out for, and Craig, you and I know secular reporters. I know several. I try to be as friendly and cordial as possible. But they don't want to get it at times. The two versions of choice that are regularly interchangeably used, but they're really opposites, is choice means that, you know, Roe v. Wade, it, it, it gave the opportunity that if a woman's really in a situation, you, you don't know what's going on in her life. And so she needs to be able to make that decision. But, you know, it's really regulated. And it's really, it's just something that she needs to be able to have that, if, if it's tough. And, man, why are you being so mean? So, yeah, in the first trimester, it's really early, early, early. I mean, it's just as I go, it's first trimester only. And that impression is given. And then, of course, yeah, if there's, if there's later abortions, it's because there's something wrong. How dare you make a woman suffer? How, how dare you bring a brainless baby into the world? And this notion that somehow there's these really dire circumstances. And that's a very common feeling about choice, even among some pro-life people I know. They don't understand the power of the Doe v. Bolton decision. No. The other definition of choice, and you've heard it, and this is what you need to understand that Doe v. Bolton does. In that definition of choice, a, an ideology says that's part of the woman's body, and you have to give her that freedom to do what she wants with her body and that's part of her body, and any reason you give, if she has to have a reason, if we have to say, look, we're going to allow it for these cases, rape, incest, life of the mother, severe fetal deformity, well, you're making her give a reason. That's why they don't want those exceptions, and that's specifically exactly what Justice Blackman said. You don't need those exceptions. It may be disposed of throughout pregnancy, as long as this notion of health is defined as emotional. Under the law, and this is why this parallels so strongly the issue of slavery, the basic issue in slavery is the right to life. Lincoln included that in many of his speeches. You cannot own another human being, even though that was happening in the U.S. at the time. And there were Americans who said, we want to own human beings. There's nothing wrong with that. We're helping them. We're giving them better. We will. We can make better decisions for them. That slavery, you can't own a human being. In abortion, you cannot own a human being. And in both of these, you cannot kill a human being you own. That's a basic premise of the law, and it's the very premise that put those laws in effect. In fact, the person who engineered every state having state laws on abortion, the ones that were struck in Rome, was the founder of modern gynecology, Dr. Horatio Storer. And he insisted that we have abortion laws in every state, because they were happening back before the Civil War. But he understood, he's the founder of modern gynecology, he studied childbirth, he was the first to really get into it, and he said, they're killing my youngest patient. It's a human being. The reason those laws were put into place is because you are killing a most vulnerable human being that cannot protect themselves. Dr. Horatio Storer is a great hero. He's never talked about, but that's the reason our laws exist, 
to protect those who can't protect themselves. Well, so, go ahead. No, I was going to say, the, the, the irony behind all of this is the, the not only morally disingenuous, but intellectually disingenuous aspect that, and we've, we've, you, you and I have had these conversations in the past, to the degree to which there's always that sense of, well, there are protections built in, we just want to make sure at the end of the day that a woman and her health is protected. And of course, sadly, as you point out, there's no effort, intentionally so, to define what that means. Are we talking about a threat to her physical well-being, her emotional well-being, her mental well-being? What exactly does that mean? Well, the law intentionally does not delineate the kind of health to which then that becomes not only a very convenient escape hatch, but essentially renders every other aspect of limitations Null and void. And this is exactly the intention that they had from the very get-go. You can read more about this, by the way, uh, online. Go to nrlc.org. That's the National Right to Life Committee.org. Brian Johnston, Western Regional Director with the National Right to Life Committee. Sir, as always, we appreciate the time, the insights, and most importantly, the effort toward disseminating the truth in a day and age when it seems to be on life support. Literally. 6.20. We're late. Let's get caught up on traffic. We'll switch into the KFAX Traffic Center. Slam our brakes on. Not too hard. Find out what's going on over there. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. You can be assured that at some point when Congress gets away from their other financial distractions, they will return once again to the topic of gun control. They did as they did so following the Sandy Took events. Joining me now with some insights, we're joined by Bill Frady. Bill is host of the nationally syndicated program called Lock and Load, presented by Gun Owners of America. Bill, thanks for taking some time to be with us tonight. Um, I I guess only the distraction of other things going on in Washington, D.C. has temporarily delayed the parade of, once again, renewed demands to uh, truncate Second Amendment rights. Yeah, yeah, right now they've got bigger fish to fry. Uh, It's really... You know, in the United States, uh, since Sandy Hook, uh, there's been five studies and surveys taken. Uh, two of them, actually three of them are quite notable because one was Harvard, one was the CDC, and one that was the Justice Department. And what the CDC found out is uh, John Lott's numbers and Gary Kleck's numbers and all, of, all the numbers that we hear about two and a half million, three million gun uses per year in defense are true and that law-abiding gun owners are very good people. They don't break the law. They, they, they don't snap because they're carrying the evil gun. Uh, police, uh, the, we had the police one survey where they did 15,000 police officers across the country, and uh, the lowest percentage of police that were talking about they preferred having Americans armed with guns was in the 80 percentile. Uh, they don't believe more gun control is going to stop crime or do anything. Uh, then, of course, we had uh, the Pew Research Center, and uh, I think I've named them all now. Crime is down 49%. Defense. Gun violence, violent crime across the board is down half of what it was 20 years ago. It, it's a non-problem. And, but that's not why they're pursuing gun control, so that's why they continue to pursue gun control. It has nothing to do with personal safety or uh, preventing crime, because... 
gun control doesn't prevent crime. It, it uh, motivates crime. Well, and, you know, the, the absolute irony in almost without failure, every one of these cases from the White House, I'm sorry, from the uh, wire story that I'm reading right here um, that suggests that the uh, potential woman in this uh, event there on Capitol Hill today, 34-year-old Miriam Carey, um, a dental hygienist from Connecticut who, quote, was described by sources as having a history of mental illness, close quote. Certainly in the case of uh, the Naval Shipyard shooter, a history of mental illness. There seems to be a common thread in almost every one of these cases. As eager as Congress is to try to move in and outlaw guns, how come nobody's attempting to try and outlaw mental illness? Well, that's because they would have to treat it differently. Um, uh, Dr. Keith Ablow is a psychiatrist that writes for Fox News, and he, he was talking about Aaron Alexis, and Aaron Alexis could have been redeemed. Most of these people could be redeemed, but what happens is they go to a they go to a psychologist or a psychiatrist and they get some over the counter well over oral medication like Paxil or Ritalin or Zoloft or one of those psychotropic compounds, and that really doesn't address their issue. The ones that are deeply, I mean, Aaron Alexis, he did everything but uh, write out a letter, big block letter. Somebody needs to help me. He went to the police. He went to the VA. He had shoot. He had two shooting incidents prior to uh, getting cleared to work at the naval shipyard, um, and and still nobody did anything. And, I, and ironically, nobody looking at any of the psychiatrists involved in this and saying, "Gee, we need to do an investigation into potential malpractice here because of the failure of the mental health professionals to aggressively respond or react to the obvious cry for help." Uh, you know, I don't know if the, these guys fall under the uh, the heading of medical misadventure, but um, if you want to go after the two biggest killers in the United States, or two, I think the average is two and a half million people die unnaturally per year, and the biggest killers are alcohol and tobacco, and then medical misadventure, which kills about two hundred thousand people a year. And I don't know if these these poor people that uh, fall through the cracks of the mental health system could be listed under medical misadventure, but they, uh, they certainly need to they need to take a very serious look at, at, at the way they're treating these people. One of the states that, that ironically has um, come across fairly unscathed in terms of this kind of widespread bloodshed in, uh, in recent years and yet has taken some of the hardest line against gun control is uh, the state of California. Um, yeah. There's now an attempt to try, and, and and I guess at the end of the day, you'll have to help us understand this, Bill. Uh, it, it seems as if it's now gotten down to an attempt to try and outlaw hunting rifles. Well, what they want to do is they all want to outlaw all semi-automatic rifles that have a detachable box magazine, which abandons all pretense beyond the assault weapon ban. Now, you you got to understand, first of all, assault weapon, the term assault weapon is a term that was coined by the uh, Violence Policy Center, which is a rabid anti-gun group. And they termed that back in 1988 as, as a way to uh, cause an emotional reaction to the description, assault weapon. Uh, not a target pistol, not a sporting rifle. Uh, the, the same rifles, by the way, are referred to by the Department of Homeland Security as personal defense weapons. But... Um, in the hands of, of a civilian, it becomes a, a, an assault weapon. And uh, now they've abandoned all pretense, and they're going just about everything that launches a bullet. Well, the Remington that was used in the naval shipyard shootings, uh, what I understand to be a simple pump-action shotgun, 
Does that suddenly come under the category of an assault weapon? Uh, well, they <laughs> one state had a buyback not too since the D.C. shooting, and uh, one of the buybacks somebody bought uh, turned in a pump shotgun with an extendable stock, and that was the that they uh, claimed they had collected an assault shotgun. Um, one one characteristic that uh, all weapons and you know shotguns arguably uh, are in Aurora. James Holmes killed 12 people. The first weapon he turned on the moviegoers was a Remington 870 shotgun. And uh, my theory, he probably killed eight people with the shotgun before he went to the center fire rifle. Because a shotgun up close is devastating. It, it is much more dangerous. Uh, at 50 yards, a, a shotgun with the right kind of ammo can take out a car. What this is... Is, is simply this. With, with uh, the so-called assault weapons, the military lookalikes that have the same uh, semi-automatic capability as a true assault rifle does when it's in semi-automatic, if they ban those, first of all, it's not going to have any impact on crime because more people get killed with hands and feet every year than they do with any sort of long rifle. They know that. So they ban those, or they, they heavily restrict those. And that has no impact on crime, and crime continues on. So then they come back, and I think what you've got in California, you have this happening now. They come back when that first go-round, that first restrictive go-round doesn't work, and they come back and say, well, we didn't ban enough. And they keep on banning and banning until one day you've got a single-shot rifle that, uh, you know, and, and still, you know, that weapon is lethal. I, they, they, what what Senator Leland Yee and a lot of the politicians in California want is a fairy tale land. It's a land that does not exist. There is no gun-free utopia. That genie is out of the bottle. The criminals are not going to pay attention to it. Well, and we know clearly from the battles over these kinds of issues in times past, the last time we had um, California Senator Dianne Feinstein uh, jump on this bandwagon with both feet and insisting that we needed to uh, permanently ban assault weapons, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, and how terrible they were and that people should not be carrying guns. And then we find out, oops, she's got a concealed weapons permit. I don't have a problem with her as a senator carrying, but when there is sort of the elitist attitude that certain people get to have guns and others don't, you know, it comes down to one basic thing, that as we see this continued push, it's not addressing the real problem here, number one. And number two, you're going to wind up with two groups of people having weapons, Uh, the police force, which is heading more toward a maritalistic style, um, you know, almost paramilitary troopers any more than police these days with the way they're being armed, and the criminals. And meanwhile, the law-abiding citizens will simply get caught in the middle, no access to weapons whatsoever, which is kind of seemingly where things are headed if they get their way. Check out LockAndLoadRadio.com. That's LockAndLoadRadio.com, a part of Gun Owners of America. And there is Bill Frady on this edition of Lifeline. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All of us, from time to time, have struggled with within our Christian walk, and that is hearing the voice of God. Um, We are told in John 10 and 27, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And for all of us that say, gee, I, 
I just wish I could hear God's voice more distinctly in life. It would be great if there was the loud, thundering, booming voice out of heaven that shakes you to your innermost being. And yet more often than not, when God speaks, he speaks with that still, small voice. Why is that exactly? Well, our next guest has written a book on the very topic called Hearing God in Conversation, How to Recognize His Voice Everywhere, newly published by Kriegel Publications. And its author, our guest today, he is the founding director of Kids of the Heart, author of another of other best-selling books, including Is Sunday School Destroying Our Kids? Samuel Williamson. Great to have you on the program. Hi, Craig. Thanks very much for, welcome, for welcoming me. I really appreciate it. It would honored. be great if God spoke in this loud, thundering, booming voice that we could know instantly, aha, there is the voice of God instructing me and making the right choices and decisions along life's highway. But in fact, God chooses other methodology. We know certainly that he can speak to us through his word. He can speak to us through others. But that sense of hearing that still, small voice directly inform ourselves, that seems to be elusive for a lot of Christians. Why is that? I think it is elusive, and I think part of the reason, Craig, is because people have this expectation that God only speaks to, you know, the high and mighty, the saints, you know, you know, uh, St. Francis of Assisi, or Billy Graham, or Mother Teresa. And I think it's a false expectation, because I think Scripture's very clear when you look at all the heroes of the faith, and, and, their, and their foibles, I, I think it's very clear that God speaks to us because of his greatness and not because of our greatness. And, and we can have a confidence because his greatness is so great and our greatness is so small. But he, but he speaks to us because of his greatness. All right. So toward that end, then, um, it, it, part of it then has to do with our sense of, of, of perspective on our relationship. If God is speaking to us in and out of his greatness, uh, that would also require me to understand the nature of or the balance of the relationship that I have with God, would it not? It absolutely does. And, you know, the Scripture is filled with metaphors that God himself uses to teach us about our relationship with him. And he says that we are the sheep, here's the shepherd. He says that we are the servants, he is the master. We're the subjects, he is the king. But it also says we are the children, he is the father. You know, it breathtakingly intimately, he says we are the spouse and he is the bridegroom. But every one of these metaphors is a human relationship. And, you know, Craig, the essence of relationship, if you think of your, uh, of your family, of your spouse, of your friends, the essence of relationship is communication. And it's two-way communication. And... I think when we read Scripture, Scripture overflows with the idea of God wanting to speak to us, wanting us to recognize His voice. It, it's the essence of Christianity, a relationship with God. And I think God promises and mm, invites us to have a, a, a communicative, a, a, a conversational relationship with Him. All right, now let's talk about that, because that suggests, as you talk about relationship, and anybody, I think, with, with half a mind understands that in order for there to be any success in a relationship, there needs to be that sense of give and take. And that's true of marriage relationships. It's true if you want to get along with, uh, with your siblings or get along with your, uh, your offspring. Uh, but with that said, it, it, it's kind of a curiosity in that uh, so often when we, 
we think about conversation with God, what we really think about or engage in is monologue. And yet what God wants is dialogues. It's not just a matter of of God hearing from us and usually our laundry list of all the things that we want or our complaints, but then hearing back from God in return. And I think a lot of people find getting into that place where we have a sense that it's not a monologue, but rather a dialogue with God. That seems to be elusive because it requires upon us as well to be listening as well as talking. Absolutely, Craig. Absolutely. And I would say that the few times that we especially want to hear him is the big times of decisions in our life. Like, you know, should I become a doctor or a lawyer or a business person? Should I become a radio host? You know, or should I marry this person or that person? I think that we're, we typically mostly hope for God for the major decisions of our life. But, Craig, I don't know about anything about your relationship with your father or your parents. But, but let me ask you a question of your fondest memory of your parents. Uh, you know, if you can think back over your whole life, was it times that they lectured to you or was it times when they just talked to you? Oh, I think it's very clear. I mean, all of us remembering our, our childhood years recall a lot of lectures. Uh, and yet, as, as profound as those moments <laughs> might have been, uh, my, my dad, who, uh, who went to be with the Lord, I still, at 8 o'clock on Sunday evenings, pause, and there's that sense of, of uh, that gap. Because yeah, yeah. while we talked throughout the week at various times, uh, 8 o'clock Sunday evening seemed to be the time when the week was over with, the weekend was over with, and we had a chance to get on the phone for a half hour, 45 minutes, an hour, whatever it took, and just dialogue, just converse back and forth, and he'd tell his stories, and I would tell mine, and, and I, I cherish those moments probably more so than the lectures. <laughs> I, of course, absolutely, and mine's the same way. My dad and I, you know, high school might have been a little tougher, but, I mean, I, for, for, for 30 years, my dad and I had a wonderful conversational relationship, and, and that's what I remember. And even with my wife, you know, my wife and I, we, we went on our 30th anniversary to Italy a few years ago. But really, the, the heart and soul of our relationship is when we just sit after dinner and have a cup of coffee and talk together. And it's not even you know, earth-shattering discussions. It's just normal discussions. And I believe this is what God wants for his people. In fact, how are we going to recognize God's voice in, in, in the storm of a terrible decision if we haven't learned to recognize his voice in the calm wind of a, you know, a, an evening breeze? Mm. We really need to recognize God's voice in a conversation if we're going to learn to recognize his voice in those very desperate times when we have to make a hard decision. There is a reason why, and God certainly in his infinite power could choose to use the loud, thundering voice from the heavens, as we all uh, sort of think of, you know, via our experience in the movies. And yet God, I think, purposefully has chosen to instead speak through, as we see articulated in Scripture, through the still, small voice. And I'm going to ask you why you think that is and what we can learn from that when we come back to more of our conversation. Samuel Williamson with us today, the book Hearing God in Conversation, How to Recognize His Voice Everywhere. The new book, by the way, newly published by Kriegel Publications. You'll find it at bookstores throughout the Bay Area, as well as you can order directly through Samuel's website at beliefsoftheheart.com. A brief time out. Back to more of our conversation as Lifeline continues. (laughs) 
And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. We are back to our conversation, and Samuel Williamson, our guest today, his new book, Hearing God in Conversation, How to Recognize His Voice Everywhere. Now, Samuel, God being God, he can choose to communicate by any means he desires. We'll recall a time when he chose to communicate through a burning bush, as uh, Moses had the experience. Uh, we, We know that he could open up the heavens with a thunderous voice, but instead, for the most part, for most believers, um, rather than the loud thundering voice that we would know as it shook us to our very core that it was clearly the voice of God, instead God chooses to speak in that that still small voice, as Scripture tells us. Why is that? Is that is that? It's got to be. Per- God is a very purposeful God. There's got to be a reason behind that. I, I think there's two reasons, Craig and. I think the first is, we're all familiar with the passage in First Kings, I think it's 19, but it might be 20, where God speaks to Elijah out of a still small voice. But the background of that is, Elijah has just been involved in one of the greatest miracles God does in the Old Testament. You know, there's this big contest between the prophets of Baal and the prophet of God, Elijah, and Elijah builds this. You know, he puts, he puts together an altar, and he puts together the wood on it, he puts a sacrifice on it, and God sends a fiery bolt down from heaven, burns up the sacrifice and the wood and the water and the stones and even the earth, and nobody changes. I mean, Elijah is expecting the people to rise up against Ahab and Jezebel. You know, if not rise up, at least he's expecting some, some, some protesters out front saying, we want the Lord, you know, we want the Lord. But nothing happens. And, and Elijah becomes terribly depressed, and he goes down to Mount Sinai. And that's where, it's very interesting, God says, an earthquake came by, but there was no, but God was not in the earthquake. A whirlwind came by, and God was not in the earthquake, in the whirlwind. And a fire came by, and God was not in the fire. And the thing that's so funny is that when God spoke to Moses, he spoke out of the fiery bush. So we spoke out of fire. When God spoke on Mount Sinai to the people of Israel, he spoke out of an earthquake. And when God spoke to Job, he did speak out of a whirlwind. So it's not that God doesn't speak in those things. But I think the deliberate contrast with this huge, spectacular miracle and not changing people's hearts is part of God's point when he finally says, and then God spoke in a still small voice. I don't think the spectacular changes us, Craig. I mean, I wish I could say if I had something spectacular would change me, but I really think it's the still, small, quiet, conversational voice of God every day that changes my heart. And, and I would think the big miracles do, but you know, Jesus did all kinds of miracles and the Pharisees didn't change their minds. And, and so I, I really do think God is saying there, there's a part of us humans, maybe us humans in the Western world especially, there's a part of us that wants the spectacular and the miraculous. And I believe in the spectacular and miraculous. Please don't misunderstand me. But I think the thing that changes my heart is when I sit in my chair and I hear God say, you know, Sam, I think you were ignoring your wife. I think you should go repent to her. And it's a quiet, calm voice that has a steady assurance in his voice. And so I think God really, I think God has an, has an invitation. So my first reason that God speaks out of the still small voice instead of the spectacular is I think that's the way humans work. I would say the second reason is I think God likes us to seek him. 
And sometimes when we speak, seek the spectacular, we're, we're hoping for an emotional experience more than just to be touched by the hand and the heart and the tongue of God. So he wants us to seek him. I'm sorry for that long answer, Greg. I really appreciate your kindness. No, it, it's an appropriate answer, and I think it also puts things in perspective, and that is to recognize, too, that we serve a holy and righteous God. Amen. Um, Amen. That, I'm really serious. That, that, that sense of, and I think we've, we've, we've lost this in, in the modern-day world, that, that sense of, for example, what it meant to be a priest to enter into the Holy of Holies. And that tremendous sense of, of respect and reverence to realize that the priest was entering into the very presence of God. Uh, people forget that so much so, um, and, and Catholics listening will appreciate this, um, a bell is rung uh, during the consecration of the host uh, during Mass. And um, a bell was also um, uh, part of uh, what happened during the the sacrifice that would take place inside of the Holy of Holies. And a rope was tied around the ankle of the priest. Absolutely. Should, should the pe- priest be found with sin and God strike him dead as being unfit to be in his presence and to offer the sacrifice on behalf of the people of Israel so that they could literally pull the priest out. Because if they went in there, they would be struck. Exactly right. So I think we've <laughs> lost that sense of, of, of awe in the presence of God and in realizing that God doesn't have to raise his voice to us. He is God. Well, and, you know, the one time that God did handwriting on the wall, you know, we all talk about it, just about handwriting on the wall. The one time God wrote on the wall, the message basically was King Belshazzar you're going to die tonight. (laughs) (laughs) I think I can live without handwriting on the wall tonight. (laughs) Yeah, you're right. And the other notion here, too, and I learned this years ago in in debate, um, we have a tendency, human beings, uh, we saw this uh, just last night. You'll probably see it again on Sunday during the debates. As we're trying to, out of frustration, get our point across, we tend to think if we raise our voices, you'll hear us. Yeah, right. And yet, I learned many, many years ago that if you really want to get the most important point across, don't raise your voice. Instead, lower your voice. And people will lean in and pay more attention. And I think perhaps God is using the same principle with us. He wants us to pay attention, to recognize who he is in the splendor and glory of all of his grace and righteousness and holiness, and realize that he does care. And not only does he care, not only does he want to hear from us, but he also wants us to hear from him as we engage in that that dialogue or that conversation, uh, as you call it in the title of the book, Samuel, so that in and through that, uh, we can not only recognize his voice, but also walk in a deeper level of fellowship and pure relationship with Tim that perhaps a lot of us have never never taken it to that level, never really experienced. I agree with you completely. I, I, you know, Christianity is about relationship. And, and relationship, the heart and soul relationship is really the normal life. It's, it's not, the spectacular is great. You know, don't, don't, don't deny me any of the spectacular. 
But the heart and soul of a relationship is just the normal, everyday, faithful talking and being together. And, and really, that's what makes life rich. And I think that's what God is inviting us into. I, I believe God wants us to hear his voice every day. Almost every day. There's, there's times where he might be silent because he can't tell us something. But I, I really believe that God has something for us. And that, as, as you're talking about, he wants, uh, he wants us to be able to enter into the Holy of Holies. Because the, the temple curtain was torn. That's right. So that we can enter back into a relationship with him that, that was lost in the Garden of Eden. And, you know, we can probably talk to a lot of wives out there who would say their husbands never learn to listen, and perhaps vice versa. Uh, God, I think... Please don't call my wife. (laughs) She's online, too, you say? I'm sorry. Uh, I I think, though, that that we can also uh, learn a lot from that. That, that God perhaps would observe that we've never learned to listen to him. We talk a lot about wanting to hear from God, but do we really want to hear from God? Do we want to not only be vulnerable at that level, but take the time to walk in the fellowship and to have the kind of, of intimacy with God that he really wants not only of us, but for us? It's a compelling read and can be a life-changing one for you. Hearing God in Conversation, How to Recognize His Voice Everywhere. Newly published by Kriegel Publishers. You'll find it available available at bookstores throughout the Bay Area, as well as through the usual suspects, Amazon.com, and at Samuel's website, beliefsoftheheart.com. That's beliefsoftheheart.com. And our thanks to Samuel Williamson for being with us on this segment of Lifeline. Well, that's going to do it for this edition of Lifeline. Thanks so much for being with us. And if there was anything you heard on today's show that you'd like to hear again or share with a friend, grab a copy of the Lifeline podcast. Simply log on to kfax.com. That's kfax.com for the Lifeline podcast. Our producer is Wanda Sanchez. I'm Craig Roberts. Till next time round, remember, just don't keep the faith. Get out there and share it and make it a great evening. So long. Opinions expressed in the preceding program do not necessarily represent the views of the ownership, staff, or management of KFAX. Copyright Salem Communications, all rights reserved.